whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, hold on. Wait a second here. Now, I know warm temps lately may have you feeling tropical vibes, but folks, winter is coming. That low-slung desert sun sure does feel good on the skin. And don't get me wrong, I love the warm breeze of an early November afternoon, just like you. But people, let us not forget what we were pining for during those hot, god-awful days in July, when the snow was gone and the sun was a torturous demon. It was skiing and riding. It was face shots and dom patrols. We were dreaming of those lung-busting uphills and mind-blowing downhills, and the satisfaction of turns that can only be felt when they are earned. That's it. That's what we're waiting for. Patiently. Right? Well, this is a snowcast, not a sandcast. So let's kick things off the right way. Hit it! Hello everyone, and welcome to the San Juan Snowcast. This is your local source for the current snow and avalanche conditions in the San Juan Mountains of Southwest Colorado. I'm your host, Chris, and today is Wednesday, November 10th, 2021, and you're listening to Episode 5. Well, as that intro alluded to, it feels pretty damn warm and summery right now in the San Juan Mountains. As I predicted in Episode 1, our October snowfall was followed by an early November drought, with storm systems remaining to the north and to the west of our little corner of Colorado. It's a trying time for the backcountry traveler, with just enough snow on the peaks to drool over, but not enough to confidently ride. It's a time of patience and planning. Hell, it's preseason. Until there is more snow on the ground to talk about, I'm going to take a few episodes to dive deep into a few topics that I've come to realize are super important for the backcountry traveler. And since it's preseason, what better time to do some critical thinking about how and why we slide down snow in avalanche terrain? We'll take a quick look at the weather and our snowpack before we dig into this week's topic, technology in the backcountry. So lock out those toe pieces and slap on some skins because the snowcast starts now. All right, let's kick things off with the state of the snowpack and a look at last week's weather. Well, according to the CAIC, the avalanche hazard across the state of Colorado is low. And here in the southern mountains, that low rating is mostly due to the lack of available snow to even create avalanches. Since the last show, we've had nothing but warm, dry, sunny days. And these conditions have melted snow on the sunny and lower elevation slopes and promoted lots of settlement in the areas harboring deeper snow. While terrain features like gullies and bowls still hold some snow on the solar aspects, it's looking patchy at best, and that's only at the upper elevations. On the flip side of the compass... The shady aspects have widespread snow coverage above 10,500 feet, with deeper pockets near and above treeline, and in wind-loaded areas. This is the time of year where you can begin to make a mental map of the areas that are still holding snow. I start to take these mental snapshots, because, guess what? Those areas still holding snow are A. More likely to be cold and shady B. More likely to hold soft powder that I might want to ski at some point this winter and C, also more likely to be the zones where persistent weak layers will linger in the snowpack. The hardworking folks at the CAIC, Chris, Jeff, and Jeremy, have been out there checking things out in those shady cold zones, and they've observed a mid-pack crust with facets above it and below it in the La Platas, around Silverton, and near Ophir Pass. Again, at this point, 
Not a huge concern. But that PWL is out there, lurking, and it could be something we keep our eye on if it persists. Luckily for us, the unseasonably warm weather we've been having has slowed the fastening process by creating a less steep temperature gradient. Remember that from episode one? Overall, there's nothing too unusual about this weather pattern for us, and until we start getting a whole bunch more snow, that's all there is to talk about regarding the state of the snowpack. Did someone say, more snow? Well, don't get too excited now, folks, because here on Wednesday morning, the little storm that came through last night dropped about one to three inches, with a strong southwest wind blowing it all over the place. Looking ahead to the rest of the week, a high-pressure ridge returns, and according to NOAA, temperatures could warm back up so much that we're four to eight degrees above normal through Monday of next week. The high-pressure ridge will hopefully begin to break down around the middle of next week. Fingers crossed. Well, that's it for the weather. Funk break! (music) Folks, let's face it. Technology has taken over our lives. Whether we like to admit it or not, the technology we use can give us knowledge and information. It can facilitate connection and communication and it provides us with tools that can literally help us save lives. Now, backcountry travelers as a group are a collection of people who enjoy walking around in nature, in cold and or wet weather, with heavy boards strapped to their feet. So, maybe not the most technologically inclined crew. And as we know, folks went into the backcountry back in the day without all the newfangled gadgets and gizmos that we rely on today. But hey, times change. And if history has shown us anything, it's that you're better off if you change with it. Let's start off with a list of all the techie things that you could or should carry with you on a backcountry ski tour. Number one, an avalanche beacon that relies on radio waves to function. Number two, a smartphone that's tracking you via GPS. Number three, a smartwatch potentially connected to your phone. Number four, a two-way radio clipped to your shoulder strap. Number five, a GoPro strapped to your chest. Number six, a satellite communication device stashed in the brain of your pack, and number seven, maybe a headlamp with some half-dead batteries down at the bottom of your pack. That's seven potential gear items that you're going to bring with you that rely on technological components and a battery to function. Seven devices sending signals or transmitting waves buzzing around you while you serenely stroll through that winter wonderland. Holy shit, that's a lot of stuff. Now, I won't say that you should bring all these items, but one certainly could. Oh yeah, I've seen it. So how about a list of all the non-negotiables, the things you gotta have with you every time you go touring? Number one, an avalanche beacon, duh, obviously, and you check its battery life and functionality at the trailhead before each and every tour. Number two, a satellite communication device. Yep, that's my number two. Because when the defecation hits the ventilation, you must have a way to communicate with the outside world. It's just that simple. Yes, we all strive to self-rescue, and we all talk a big game about how we dig in, spend the night, and haul our broken buddy out the next morning. But let me tell you, that basically never happens. Usually, there's a slide, someone takes the ride, hopefully they survive. But if they are hurt in any major way, or if they've lost any gear you're mostly going to need outside assistance from somebody else to get you out of there. No, you will not have cell service. 
And no, you will not be able to get some other party in the area over the radio to come help. They're called worst-case scenarios because we can't rely on chance to save our asses. Remember, getting lucky is not a risk management strategy. Now, this device doesn't have to be a satellite phone, or even a large object that takes up space in your pack. I mean, the Garmin InReach Mini is 2 inches by 4 inches and weighs 3.5 ounces, and having it could possibly be the difference between having the ability to get help or sitting dead in the water. I can think of at least three local avalanche incidents in the past five years where a slide was triggered, a rider was injured, sometimes critically, and one person in that group was forced to leave their injured buddy to try to get cell service on a ridge or to return to the trailhead and drive to the closest town for help. And when I've talked to the folks who were involved in those incidents, they all have gone out and bought one of these satellite texting devices. It's mandatory in the ski guiding world to carry one, and I'm going to argue here that it should be mandatory in the recreational world as well. These devices are a few hundred bucks to buy, and they often require some kind of subscription plan where you can turn on and off service depending on when you want to use the device. Now, I know it sounds like a lot of money, but you truly cannot put a price on saving someone's life. And this could be the make or break gadget that helps you do just that. Item number three, a two-way radio. Again, another piece of technology that helps with communication and is absolutely worth its weight to bring on a tour. I don't know about you, but I do a ton of my skiing in the San Juans below treeline, usually sniffing out little alleyways or openings amongst the thick north-facing evergreens. And in that environment, it's really easy to lose your friends. If you've ever lost a buddy in the trees on the ski resort, you know how much it sucks to stand at the bottom of the run, looking uphill into the seemingly impenetrable thicket that you just popped out of, wondering, is he above me? Or did she already ski out? Or are they upside down in a tree well? That is an unpleasant uncertainty that you can most certainly avoid by using two-way radios. First popularized by Backcountry Access with the creation of their Link Radios, Small family band handheld radio use has surged in the last few years, and I think that is great for our backcountry community. Like I've already insinuated, they're clutch for intra-group communication and talking within your touring party. When pitching out a below treeline shot, I often have the first person to go announce when they're dropping, radio again when they've reached the agreed upon meeting point and describe what it looks like, and then again when they are ready and have eyes on the next rider coming down the slope. It's also a great way to communicate what the riding conditions are like. Hey, the snow's better if you stick to the shady side. Or, whoa, come down really slow. It's super firm and hard to get an edge in. I'm posted up on the right side below a big square boulder. Now, as with all technologies, there's always a tendency for some people to overdo it. And in general, a good motto for radio usage is never miss an opportunity to just shut up and listen. Less is more. Clear and concise is what you're shooting for. And remember, other folks could be on the same channel and could be listening to every single thing you're saying. So don't clutter the airwaves with unnecessary traffic. If you find there's just too much chatter on the channel you're on, you could always switch to a different channel. And sometimes it's not a bad idea to communicate that you are making that switch. For instance, party of two about to ski the San Joaquin, switching to a different channel for private comms on the descent. That brings me to another great thing about family band radios, intergroup communication. You can talk to other folks who are on the same channel and within range, usually within eyesight. 
In Telluride, we've got designated channels for the different backcountry areas that often get skied, which makes for easy communication between groups. And in busy areas like Bear Creek or Red Mountain Pass, communicating your plan to others in the area can decrease the risk that you get dropped in on or that you're about to drop in on someone else. Party of four about to drop the Narnia face, just checking to see if anyone is on the face or in the runout. We'll confirm when we're all down and out of the runout. Fun fact, we got our zone-specific channels here in Telluride because of an incident where one group dropped in on another in highly consequential terrain after their plan to text each other fell through. And nowadays, there's more than just the BCA radios out there to choose from, although the link radios are an excellent option. There are new, compact, and easy-to-use offerings coming out all the time. For instance, a company named Rocky Talkie they hand test their compact and rugged radios just up the road in Denver, and they started in 2019. While I haven't gotten my hands on a set of Rocky Talkies to test for myself, I've heard pretty good things from friends. And the radio, which comes with a small carabiner to attach it to your backpack's shoulder strap, only costs 90 bucks, making it super affordable and a potential communication solution for you and your friends. And what's the last non-negotiable technological item to bring on every tour? Well, I think it's a headlamp because nothing, absolutely nothing is worse than being hurt, lost, or stuck out in a blizzard while also being in the dark. Man, talk about a morale crusher. It's worth it to bring every time because when you need it, you really need it. Well, that just leaves some techie items on the negotiable list. So these are devices that certainly can serve a purpose, but aren't mandatory to bring with you every time. For instance, smartphones and smartwatches. An excellent way to stay found and to bring maps with you into the field. Also, a great way to take photos and document what you're seeing out there, above and below the snow surface. I use my smartphone as an inclinometer, a mapping tool, camera, and a journal. But hey, if you prefer a paper map and compass, maybe you don't need to always bring your phone. A crazy concept, I know. Well, if I do bring my phone, I pay really close attention to which pocket I put it in. Because guess what? It can cause interference with our avalanche transceivers. It should be at least 20 centimeters away from your beacon when it is sending, and 50 centimeters away from your beacon when you're using it to search. This is a great thing to check with your friends at the trailhead before you start up that skin track, and to monitor throughout your tour as layers come off, or get put on, and those pesky phones end up in different pockets. What's the last item up for debate on its usefulness in the backcountry? Ah, yes, the GoPro. Now, I'm not here to shame anyone for trying to document their sweet ski adventures, because after all, nearly every pro skier and rider these days has somewhere between one and three POV cameras strapped to their body, rolling for each and every drop. Hell, I've been known to put a GoPro on my head occasionally, so I don't want to make people feel bad for doing so. But it is worth asking yourself a few questions. Number one, why am I recording this? Number two, who do I hope will see it? And number three, what is my motive for sharing the footage? In my personal experience, and after some tough reflection, I can say that I probably trend towards riskier behavior when I'm skiing and there is a red light blinking above my head. It's pretty hard to admit that, but hey, our egos are real, and they love to get us into big trouble. So that's my caveat on the GoPro. Think hard about how it may affect your decision-making in the backcountry. 
And remember, your life is worth more than likes on social media. Well, that's a wrap on my rant about technology's role in the backcountry. And here's a quick recap. Every single time I go touring, I carry these items. My avalanche transceiver, a satellite communication device, a two-way radio, and buddies who've also got them, and a headlamp. And most of the time, I do end up also bringing my smartphone too. But having these items with you, that's only part of the equation. You also need to know how to use them and how to leverage their power to help you when you are in the backcountry and you need it the most. I'll admit it, I'm not a huge adherent to the fast and light ethos because I'm just the type of person that wants to have everything I need to deal with the worst case scenario when, not if, it happens. But hey, if you're counting grams, some of these items can be shared between you and your ski partners. Just make sure you know what you have as a group and who has what. I usually just leave everything in my pack so that I know I have it. And yes, occasionally I suffer the criticism of my weight weenie friends who gawk at my full to the brim 45 liter pack. And maybe I'm old school in this regard. The bottom line, I carry a lot of stuff that I would need in an emergency. And other than the extra weight of hauling it uphill, I'm usually psyched to have it all. Maybe this is the season you finally pull the trigger on a radio or a satellite texting device. Are you for or against having all these gadgets on us while we participate in nature-based recreation? Let me know by leaving a comment on the Instagram page at San Juan Snowcast or by shooting me an email at sanjuansnowcast at gmail.com. Also, if there's a community event you want to get out there, shoot me an email and I'd be happy to spread the word. And finally, on next week's show, we'll keep covering preseason prep by digging into emergency preparedness. I'll share with you what's in my first aid kit and my repair kit. I'll make a pitch for why we should all be carrying some form of rescue sled or tarp with us. And I'll revisit an avalanche incident that happened two years ago in our local zone to illustrate the usefulness of carrying a few specific pieces of gear. Well, thanks again for listening, folks. And until next time, think snow. Snow.